If you knew that the Lord Jesus Christ would spend the day with you and all who would come to the occasion from your home stake, what do you think he would teach you? What do you think he would do? What would be the most important truths he could communicate with you? What would you want to know from him? Let's explore these thoughts and explore the record of actual witnesses to such a day. Hello, dear friends. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we're so delighted to be with you today and share this time in this virtual study group. Before we go on, I just have to say we received the 2021 Church History Come Follow Me calendars from the press these past few days, and they are so beautiful. They're stunning. They really will add so much to your homes and offices and bedrooms and dens. They will be a must on your Christmas list. You know, we sit here with our photo archives and our design team and we put this together, but then as we pulled the first calendar out of the box from the press, I was just bowled over. I can say with all my heart, you will love these calendars and they have on them all the Come Follow Me lessons and the dates of the reception of the various sections of the Doctrine of Covenants and important dates in church history. It's such a wonderful resource. My only concern is that you buy one and you will wish you had bought 10 more as gifts. And at this introductory price of just $15, well, I truly would order more than one. We have such a rich, wonderful spiritual legacy, and I believe this calendar captures that legacy so well. You can look at them and order them today while supplies last at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 2021. That's latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 2021. Thanks for that plug, Maureen. I'm so excited to get these calendars out to everyone we know. Now, this week we are studying just 151 verses together, but these verses are packed with insights, doctrines, stories, and meaning. These seven chapters are extremely helpful in understanding the nature of Jesus Christ. These passages teach us some of the things that are most important in our lives, namely, the Holy Scriptures. So we're going to be looking at 3 Nephi chapters 20 through 26. Now, one note. We are recording this podcast in Concord, Massachusetts, because we're on a work trip photographing significant sites of the Revolution and the Restoration. So we are in our hotel room at our favorite Colonial Inn, dates to 1716, and you may hear different ambient sounds that don't show up in our studio at home, so please bear with us. I have to recall first an experience we had years ago with our children in Family Home Evening. The question was posed, if you could ask Jesus Christ anything, even anything you wanted, the wish of your heart, and you only had one question, what would it be? One of the children said, I would ask him for a hundred dollars. He was very young. Another said, I would ask him for a really nice car. Obviously, a teenager. I think I said something like, I would love to know the age of the earth and how it was created. And then you, Maureen, trumped us all with your extremely insightful question. Do you remember what you asked? Yes, I was trying to think of as large a question as I could ask so that I could learn as much as possible. So I said, and this is what I said I would say to the Lord, what do you know that I don't know? 
I gasped that and said, opened the door. <laughs> I, I gasped and said, oh, why didn't I think of that? The children all didn't know that they could ask that much. It was really quite an unforgettable moment. And here in this week's reading, we have another of these unforgettable moments. This is in 3 Nephi 26, verses 1 through 6. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had told these things, he expounded them unto the multitude, and he did expound all things unto them, both great and small. Scott, can you imagine being in a setting like this, and the Lord Jesus Christ expounds all things to us, both great and small? How thrilling would that be? How amazing would that be? How exciting it would be to have His commentary on His words. Now remember the setting. These faithful have all gathered to the temple. They are all obedient. They are all willing and ready to listen to whatsoever He tells them. This is a wonderful pattern for us to be so absorbent and ready. Oh, and I do love that, gathering at the temple to await Him teaching us. That's such a great pattern. Now let's read in verse 3. And he did expound all things, even from the beginning, until the time that he should come in his glory. Yea, even all things which should come upon the face of the earth, even until the elements should melt with fervent heat, and the earth should be wrapped together as a scroll, and the heavens and the earth should pass away. And even unto the great and last day, when all people and all kindreds and all nations and tongues shall stand before God to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Now, as a geologist's son, I've always been fascinated by the elements melting with fervent heat and what it means that the earth should be wrapped together as a scroll and the heavens and the earth should pass away. Oh, How I would love to have heard all the Lord's commentary on these events. And then look at verse 6. And now there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach unto the people. Okay, let's take that literally for a minute. Our current chapters, 11 through 26 of 3 Nephi, comprise about 31 pages of English text. If we don't even have a hundredth part of the things that Jesus taught, we could have a record someday yet to come forth that is more than 3,000 pages of English text just covering the visit of Christ to the people in Bountiful. That's more than the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price combined. And that is just from a few days' visit from Jesus to these faithful at the temple. Now that is an exciting thought that fires the imagination. It really does. It reminds me of the Savior as he talked to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There is that pattern again. How would you like to have the Savior expound unto you in all the scriptures the things concerning himself? I think that's what President Nelson is saying, that the Lord is willing to talk to us. He's willing to answer our questions. He is willing to reveal things to us which have never been revealed before. He is willing to give to us individually knowledge upon knowledge and revelation upon revelation. That's exactly right. And for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, for the faithful at Bountiful, 
they could say in unison, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? I actually think that is what he, the Lord, is inviting us to do and to experience as we daily study and ponder and pray over the scriptures, his words. I think that is such a powerful invitation, especially in these times of turmoil, trouble, and strife, or any time for that matter. It certainly is. And isn't it amazing that one of the critical things the Lord admonishes the people at the temple in Bountiful to do is to study the scriptures. But more emphatically, he commands the people to read and study the writings of the prophet Isaiah. It's interesting to me that what he said to these people who were so eagerly listening to him was to quote Isaiah in length and Micah as well. That tells you what he thinks of the scriptures. Now, why would he push so hard, even give a commandment to read and study the words of Isaiah? It reminds me of the 39th verse of the fifth chapter of John, where he admonishes the Jews, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. I was just thinking that. He's commanding the people then and us now to study and read the words of Isaiah, for they too are they which testify of me. At the time of Christ, many people prided themselves on the deep study of the scriptures, but they were missing the point and certainly missing the Savior. They would look for eternal life in the scriptures, and yet they would not see the very person who was offering it to them. And why all this emphasis on studying the scriptures? Of course, there are many reasons, not the least of which is just pure obedience. But let's look at an insight from Elder Holland on this. He teaches, because ours is the last and greatest of all dispensations, because all things will eventually culminate and be fulfilled in our era. There is, therefore, one particular, very specific responsibility that falls to those of us in the church now that did not rest quite the same way on the shoulders of church members in any earlier time. Unlike the church in the days of Abraham or Moses, Isaiah or Ezekiel, or even in the New Testament days of James and John, we have a responsibility to prepare the church of the Lamb of God to receive the Lamb of God in person, in triumphant glory, in his millennial role as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. No other dispensation ever had that duty. In the language of the scriptures, we are the ones designated in all of history who must prepare the bride for the advent of the bridegroom and be worthy of an invitation to the wedding feast. Collectively speaking, whether it is in our lifetime or our children's or our grandchildren's or whenever, we nevertheless have the responsibility as a church and as individual members of that church to be worthy to have Christ come to us, to be worthy to have him greet us, and to have him accept and receive and embrace us. The lives we present to him in that sacred hour must be worthy of him. Elder Holland continues, So, setting aside fear of the future or concerns about the dimensions of a backyard bomb shelter, I am filled with awe with an overwhelming sense of duty to prepare my life 
and to the extent that I can to help prepare the lives of the members of the church for that long prophesied day for that transfer of authority, for the time when we will make a presentation of the church to him whose church it is. I do know this. When Christ comes, the members of his church must look and act like members of his church are supposed to look and act if we are to be acceptable to him. We must be doing his work, and we must be living his teachings. He must recognize us quickly and easily as truly being his disciples. As President J. Reuben Clark Jr. once advised, our faith must not be difficult to detect. Yes, if in that great final hour we say we are believers, then we had surely better be demonstrating it. The shepherd knows his sheep and we must be known in that great day as his followers in deed as well as in word. Elder Holland concludes, Surely that is why President Hinckley said, It is not enough for us, you and me, now in our time, to simply be known as a member of this church. We must live as true followers of Christ. Yes, these are the latter days, and you and I are to be the best Latter-day Saints we can. Put an emphasis on the last word there, please. When will all of this finish? When shall Christ appear publicly, triumphantly, and the millennium begin? I have already told you that I don't know. What I do know, Elder Holland says, is that the initial moments of that event began 184 years ago. Now he gave this talk 16 years ago. I do know that as a result of that first vision and what has followed it, we live in a time of unprecedented blessings, blessings given to us for the purpose of living faithfully and purely. So when the bridegroom finally and triumphantly arrives, he can personally, justifiably bid us to the wedding feast. Isn't that all so humbling? It truly is. It's also very exciting. So from our readings this week, we need to remember that the Lord commands us to study Isaiah, whose purpose and prophecies are designed to lead us directly to Christ. He also wanted to make sure the Nephites had specific scriptures that they didn't have in their records, including a prophecy of Samuel the Lamanite and the words of Malachi the prophet concerning the return of Elijah before his second coming and Malachi's teachings on the law of tithing. I have to tell you about my feelings and testimony of tithing. Some three months after I was baptized, a frightening and very real experience was presented to my fledgling faith and new membership in the church. I shall never forget it. We lived on a beautiful farm just outside of Rolla, Missouri at the northern end of the Ozarks and in the midst of a verdant forest. I should more accurately describe our 220 acres as a spread of rolling hills covered with woods and beautiful fields and meadows, but mainly thick, deciduous woods. Our home sat on a lovely hill facing to the south overlooking a beautiful valley and hills. A lone, small gravel road connected us to the outside world. In the distance, some six-tenths of a mile away, we could see old Route 66 that was soon to become Interstate 44. The service roads had been put in for the interstate on the north and the south of the new four-lane freeway. On the south side of the far service road was a train track. 
my brother and I used to listen for the trains that would come and we would then run to our living room window and sit on the couch while we counted the cars being pulled by the large diesel engines. I believe our record was 178 cars. The spring had brought no rain that year and our land was as dry as it had ever been. The tall grasses had all turned brown. The little intermittent creek in the bottomland was nearly dry with only a few muddy water holes remaining and those full of tadpoles, minnows, and covered with active water skeeters. It was a Sunday afternoon. In those days, we met from 9 o'clock until 12 in the morning, and then we came back for sacrament meeting at 6 in the evening. Our bishop, Mervyn Peterson, was getting ready to move to Colorado, and he and his family were over for dinner. My father was his counselor, and my dad would be called to be bishop in just a couple of weeks. I remember so vividly walking out on our front porch that day with my dad. The wind was especially strong, gusting to 40 or 50 miles an hour. A gust literally picked me up off the porch and my father grabbed my hand as I was nearly blown away. I felt like a sheet hung on the line to dry, flapping in the wind. At that moment, a train made its way from the west to the east with its heavy loads and many score cars. It was making a lot of noise for some reason, high-pitched squeaking sounds. A number of the wheels of some of the cars were locked in place. With that metal on metal, they were throwing sparks out all along the track, so much so that we could see the large trails of sparks, like large sparklers coming from those wheels. Many dry leaves were swirling in the wind along the base of the tracks, and some of them caught fire. In fact, there were several little fires along the track in our view. But within moments, some of those burning leaves were carried by the wind across the service road, then the four-lane freeway and the other service road, and came like fire arrows down upon our forest on the south. From that moment, it seemed like things happened faster than I could calculate them. Our beautiful dry forest was now ablaze and because of the high winds was spreading very quickly. Our bishop's family left immediately, but not the bishop. It was soon apparent that the fire was very serious. Sacrament meeting was called off and all the brethren were called upon to help. There's a large fire at the proctor's place. We need your help, the bishop said as he called the brethren. Now a small power line ran through these very woods bringing us the electricity we needed not only for our lights and appliances, but for the pump on our well that gave us water. If the power line was burned, we would have no ability to pump water to protect our home. My father gave my 11-year-old brother and me some instructions. Fill everything you can see with water. Any container you can find, fill it with water. You must do this quickly and continue working until I give you further instructions. Upon this, he and my 15-year-old brother went off to fight the fire. My oldest brother had left on a mission to Norway just six weeks before. My brother and I ran around finding everything we could, buckets, cans, jars, an old ice chest, a feeding trough, everything. We kept looking out at the forest in flames. The strong winds were coming from the south and the fire was being fanned out of control. It was burning with mighty fury now, consuming everything in its path. The flames had leaped over our little road that led to our home, and our escape route by car was now cut off by the wildfire. 
which was now exploding all around, and the flame shot 50 to 70 feet into the air, consuming every tree, every dry bush, every bit of undergrowth. Four fire departments were now fighting the fire. Forty or fifty acres were engulfed in a sea of flames, all of it heading towards our home very rapidly. There was no natural break for the fire. On the other side of the small creek in the bottomlands was a dry field that led up the hill directly to our home. One spark, one tiny flame in this dry mass of weeds and grasses, and it would probably be a matter of three to five minutes before the fire would be to our home and consume everything we had. At this moment, my dad and older brother came quickly to the house. My dad's eyebrows were singed. His face was red from the heat and black with soot. He said to all of us, Come quickly. We need to gather and have a family prayer. I shall never forget this moment. We knelt around my parents' bed. My father and brother smelled like smoke. The smell lingered through the prayer. My father pled with the Lord that our home and belongings and lives would be spared. He prayed with great fervency. He asked that through the priesthood the fire could be stopped. He reminded the Lord that we had always paid our tithing and asked that the Lord would stop the devouring fire. I was only eight. My heart nearly burst within me in a combination of fear and faith. We got up from the prayer. My mother had gathered a few items, genealogy and pictures, some ward records that we had in a little box, and that's all. My father said, Now, boys, this is very serious. You must watch for my signal. If the fire continues as it is, you will have to go with mother and take these things, and you must run with all your might through the back trail out of the woods. You must go quickly. You cannot slow down. You must bring mother with you and run until you get to Highway V, which was about two miles away. With the lingering feeling of the prayer and the serious counsel of my father ringing in my ears, he left quickly and thrust himself back into the fire. We were prepared to run. Our hearts were pounding. Now the fire had engulfed 80 acres of forest. The flames were so high it seemed like no one could stand even getting near them. We continued to watch. The fire was now only a few feet away from the small, nearly dry creek in the bottomland. One small paper match could have started the field on fire. On an instant, and it was marked deeply in my heart, as the trees and undergrowth were burning out of control and as the flames came to the dry field, the wind changed directions. I remember not only the feeling, but the sound of the wind going the opposite direction. It was a loud blast and a pop, and the wind immediately came from the north. The wind came with great force and power. The wind blew the fire back against itself and within a few hours put itself out. Not one dry thistle in our field was charred. Not one spark landed in the weeds. Not one tree fell from south to north by the creek. The devourer had been rebuked and we were spared. Will a man rob God? The prophet Malachi asked, and this is one of the scriptures added to the Nephite record. Yet ye have robbed me, but ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? The Lord gives the answer in tithes and offerings. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. 
Now listen, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Now we have seen very recently the most terrible fires in California and in the Northwest. Many members of the church have lost their home, and I know when Paradise, California burned, how many members of the church lost their homes. So Scott, does this promise of the Lord always manifest itself in the very same way as it did on your farm in the 60s? No, it does not. I cannot forget the lesson of my youth to witness the rebuke of the devourer and see the tie to faith, to the priesthood, and to the payment of tithing. It is one of the foundation stones of my testimony, but this much I do know. The Lord is good with his promises. When he says he will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it, he means it. And that blessing may come in whatever way he chooses. In our case, he chose to save our home. In our in other cases, the blessings may come in health, in perspective, in financial prosperity, in deeper understanding and revelation, in unseen blessings. It may come at a much later time. But Maureen, there are only two times where the Lord uses the phrase, opening the windows of heaven, in all the scriptures. One is here in the promise of our faithful payment of tithing, and the other is as the flood comes upon the earth in Noah's day an overwhelming outpouring of rain. I believe that is significant. We need to remember why tithing is so critical. Let's look at this important verse from the 27th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Yes, we know that all we receive is from the Lord. Yes, we have learned with Ammon that we are nothing as to our strength, we are weak. Yes, we know with King Benjamin that we are unprofitable servants and are dependent upon God for our very breath. But what little we produce in this life, what small increase we have, the God of the universe and the Lord of hosts require us to give them 10%. It's not just a test of our obedience. It is a demarcation of our being of the ancient covenant of Israel. That one-tenth is holy unto the Lord. It is holy and it is his, for he has declared it so. And what did the Lord mean about passing under the rod? Listen to this from Ezekiel. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, saith the Lord God, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. To pass under the rod is to be counted as his sheep. As we pay our tithing, we pass under the rod and are counted as his sheep. And the promise here is that we shall know that he is the Lord. I want to be counted as his sheep, as one of his lambs. I do too. That's critical to me. Now, speaking of sheep, let's conclude with a few words about the covenant. 
the covenant. Let's start by laying a foundation stone from one of the very purposes of the Book of Mormon as set forth in the title page. And that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever. It's critical for us to know to the core of our being that we are in a covenant with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ. That covenant is so powerful, it is what binds us to them. I've always told my institute students, all of whom are in the covenant, you're not insecure, you only think you are. That's a simple statement, but if you absolutely know that you are in a covenant relationship with the God of the universe and he is always good on his promises, then this will give you absolute security. I think we cannot talk about this covenant relationship too much. I agree. And that covenant guarantees that all of covenant Israel will be gathered in, that not one will be lost. This all ties back to the commandment to read and study the words of Isaiah. The Lord said in 3 Nephi chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, And verily, verily, I say unto you, that when they, the words of Isaiah, shall be fulfilled, then is the fulfilling of the covenant which the Father hath made unto his people, O house of Israel. And then shall the remnants, which shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth, be gathered in from the east and from the west and from the south and from the north, and they shall be brought to the knowledge of the Lord their God who hath redeemed them. There is that promise of the gathering in of all that are lost. President Nelson has said over and over again that the greatest work in the world is the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. The Lord does not see his children any differently on this side or that side of the veil. They are all his family, his sheep, his lambs, and he will gather the flock. That covenant is so powerful, it would really take a great deal to resist his gathering hand. Remember the purpose of the covenant ultimately is to bring us back into the Lord's presence. Here is a beautiful image in the Book of Mormon that gives us a glimpse of that divine embrace. And it is also a really powerful image of the atonement. But behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? There are so many references to being clothed in scriptures. The Lord is clothed with majesty. He is clothed with strength. Heavenly messengers are clothed. After we die, we are clothed with a resurrected body. When we first attend the temple, our nakedness is clothed by putting on a holy garment. This is a symbol of putting on the atonement and wearing it like an embrace the rest of your life. It is a constant reminder of our covenant relationship with the Lord. That covenant protects us and binds us to him who is eternal. In the covenant, you are being held in the arms of the Lord. You are wrapped as a constant reminder in the atonement. That reminder is that you have partnered with him in your salvation and eternal life. My coming back into his presence is not just my project alone. God and I have a project, and it's me. But then the Lord says, 
Be ye therefore perfect, even as I or your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This presents a great dilemma immediately. The Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, and I am asked to be perfect? This is unfortunate because I am placed in a very difficult position. Not only am I not perfect, I don't have a clear idea of what perfect looks like. With my best imagination, I would think that it would mean that every part, every instinct, every experience, every feeling, and every thought would all work together so that you would know how to respond with perfect love, timing, and intelligence at every given moment, that nothing would escape you, that no errant feelings would arise out of nowhere. Even then, of course, that is nothing like perfect. Somewhere in our culture, however, there is a hurried, frantic sense of needing to be perfect. We had a friend who told us the other day that often through the day she is brought right up against the idea that nothing she does is right or good enough. Her house is never clean enough. Her acts of service great enough. Her children must not be trained well because they are never good enough. She's always on the line. How many times have we heard sisters in the Relief Society apologize because their lesson wasn't good enough? How many times we've seen people take on too much trying to do enough? How many times we've heard people say they were stressed and underlying that is some fear that they won't perform well enough? Does magnifying a calling really mean making it bigger? Measuring even against yourself is endless and destructive. Too often, we as covenant people are still a worried lot. We may even suspect that we are caught in the trivial chasing perfection in things that don't matter at all. All of this is a terrible misunderstanding of be ye therefore perfect. In this scripture, the word perfect is better translated as whole, the end point of a process. We've talked about that before. It's the end point of a journey that you have made in Christ's embrace in the covenant. And what is asked of us? Our love of the Lord and our willingness, if we think he expects perfection of us right now, we'll shrink from him in guilt or pain or fear like we might check out of a class from a teacher we perceived as being too hard. We may think our relationship with him is even a bit of a power struggle where we have to wrest blessings from him, argue our point with him, pout or remove ourselves from him, thinking he asks too much. So often we miss seeing his true nature or the true nature of the atonement. We think of the atonement as cleansing us, and that is true. It can lift us from the heinous and darkest sins. We may begin our spiritual journey only understanding that if we do something wrong, that we understand is wrong, that we can seek forgiveness and be cleansed. That is a gift beyond imagining, but there is so much more. There is more. And it is not just that I do wrong. It is that I still am wrong. I'm incomplete. I've had experiences that have taught me to see without clarity. I misperceive some things. I don't have the will to perform all that is good. I don't see what I should do. I am vulnerable in some ways, and that is right where someone else might hurt my feelings. I hurt others when I don't mean to, and then it feels unjust if they are mad at me. I commit sins of omission. I commit unintentional sins. I don't even know exactly what I should be repenting of. We have to remember that the atonement is about forgiveness, And it is also about comfort, hope, counsel, clarity, empowerment, rebirth. 
You are clothed for this journey in that covenant. And here is what we offer in this covenant. Our whole heart in love and our willingness to be transformed. Our wanting to obey the commandments. What we can't offer right now is our perfection. If we think we can, we hurt ourselves. If we expect it of others, we hurt them. I am grateful for this scripture. We are told that we should seek earnestly the best gifts. For verily, I say unto you, they are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments and him that seeketh so to do. I do love that. I really identify with that last part. In the covenant, the Lord requires a willing mind. I can't give perfection, but I can give my willingness. I can give my will. On this covenant journey through the wilderness of life, I will not fight you, debate, go away in a huff. I will let you embrace me and carry me, since thou, Father, are by far the stronger partner. That's all for today. It's so good to be with you. Next week, we will be studying 3rd Nephi 27 through 30 and 4th Nephi with the lesson entitled, There Could Not Be a Happier People. Now, remember, you can see the transcript for each of these podcasts at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash podcast. That's latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget to order your new 2021 Church History Come Follow Me calendar at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 2021. Thanks to Paul Cardall for the beautiful music, and thanks to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins, who does so much to bring this podcast to you. Blessings to you, and we can't wait to be with you next week.